Well, welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Pastor Tim Trometer, one of the pastors here at the church. I'm so glad that you are here on this first Sunday of the new year. We are one church meeting in two locations um, when our mission and vision is to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. It's why we're here. It's why we exist. Um, we are moving into a new teaching series called A Faith That Works. And I am, I know this sounds very millennial and trendy. I am super excited about it um, because James is a book that actually helped me take a step into ministry. Um, when I got out of the military um, and was having a crisis of faith, I picked up a Bible and I looked for one of the shortest books in the Bible to read, and it was James and that I hadn't read before, and it was James. And I, I read James and I read Ecclesiastes, or Kohelet, and the two books kind of formed this, this concept of, well, life is meaningless, but, that's Kohelet or, or Ecclesiastes, and then James, this, my faith should mean something. It should cause me to do something that, that I should be doing something because I believe. And, and so James is a very important book to me personally. And so I've always wanted to, to teach a series on the book of James, and I've never done it. And so it's, it's a very important series to me um, as as we start this new year, and I, and I thought it was fitting, instead of doing a, a series on resolutions, that this year, with all that is going on in our denomination, in our culture, in our political world, in our community here in St. John's, with, with the milk plant and with, with everything else in, in, our, in our economy here in St. John's, that now more than ever is a time for us here in St. John's to be looking at what does it mean for us here as a community to have a faith that actually works, not just in our life, but to have a faith that works in real life. To not just say I believe or to believe in my heart, but to have it impact the way that I live my life. So that when I say I'm a person who believes, that it impacts what I do at home how I raise my kids, how I interact with someone on the highway, maybe. But that, but that it's a faith that works. Not just some Pollyanna Christianity that, that is really good on paper but makes no sense in real life. And so we're going to start today in the very beginning of James and kind of explain the book, go through it some, and it's, we're talking about growing pains a little bit because it's not an easy book. A lot of the passages are easy to read, but they're really not. There's nothing about James that's easy to apply. Because people like um, Martin Luther wanted it thrown out of the Bible because <laughs> he didn't like it at all, because it didn't talk about Jesus enough. And people say it, it conflicts with Paul because it talks, because if you don't read it and understand it in the right way, it looks like works righteousness, meaning if you work hard enough, then you'll be holy. But that's not what James is talking about. So I'm really excited about where it'll take us over these next six weeks. And we're going to start today about with these growing pains and how as we grow in faith, it's, it's, kind of, it's going to be kind of brutal and it's going to hurt a little bit. But I pray and I hope that it's really going to help us as we move into these, this new year because there's going to be some major challenges that we're going to face in this new year. We have, not just in our church, and not just in our denomination, and not just in our community, and not just in our country. There are so many things we are going to face this 
year, 2020, or 2020, or 2020, whatever you call it, it's going to be a hard year, folks. So let's build towards it with a faith that works so we're prepared. Let's pray. Lord of mercy and abundant love, we have gathered here this day to hear your healing words of compassion and to be transformed by your love. Help us to become more faithful servants in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Welcome to the new year. Turn a page from 2019 to 2020. 2020-2020. That's mine. Um, I encourage you all to adopt 2020 as the new moniker of the new year. Um, I hope you are seeing clearly on this first Sunday of the new year. And it seems like every year, at least for me, we turn the corner of Christmas and the new year and mysteriously found ourselves 10 pounds heavier broken and frustrated uh, with our loved ones. I don't know if maybe you're not, but frustrated with our loved ones and family members and ready to get the new year going, or at least ready to get our kids back into school. Um, and we're ready to push reset on our life. Just just want things to get back to normal or sort of some semblance of a regular life. Um, it's kind of like the vacation that you need to go on after you go on vacation. But, I mean, don't even get me started, though. I really want to get on, on New Year's resolutions. Okay, how many of you made a New Year's resolution this year? Fran, honestly, though, I mean, I, I just, I got to, okay, a pet peeve of mine is New Year's resolutions. I just, I don't like New Year's resolutions. We, we tend to drop them quicker than we make them, right? And I, I'm just, I have a lot of friends that are still big into New Year's resolutions, And I really don't think we're that vain that we really want to be appealing to every person of the opposite sex. I just, I don't think that's really our desire in life because that would make a really weird culture if that was really our, and if that's you um, and you're sitting next to your partner, just be careful how you respond. (laughs) And and honestly, I know know being healthy is a thing because I want to be healthy, but salad? all the time, like, and I'm not talking like bacon with lettuce, I'm talking about lettuce with no bacon and no ranch, I mean, that's just not right, and so I'm just, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day and came across this image, and it gave me a laugh, does this speak to you at all, it's the gym in January and the gym in February, and I just, it just was just about right, trying to get on a treadmill, Not that I would ever get on a treadmill. I'm one of those guys who says, you know what, I'll just work out at home. And so I own a treadmill. It's in the garage. It's got about that much sawdust just glazed over the top of it. It's right next to my punching bag that also is covered in sawdust, except for when I bump into it and it bumps, it comes off. But, you know, we all do it. We make these commitments in our life, and we have no ability nor intention to complete And what's worst is that most of the time we're well aware that we're never going to accomplish the resolutions that we set for ourselves. And still, we announce it, Fran. We let everyone know we're going to do these things. I'm just teasing. You know, one of my favorite quotes about quitting smoking, and I I know because I am a former smoker and you know this about me, Mark Twain once said, quitting smoking is the easiest thing in the world to do. 
I've done it a thousand times. And um, it's true, but you never quit the habit. I smell, and you know this, <laughs> I smell someone smoking, and I'm immediately just transfixed on it because the habit you may never be able to break. At any rate, I digress. Do you know what we call someone who promises to do something but they have no intention to do? Resolutions that you don't plan to keep is like telling someone you're going to pick them up from the airport that you never plan to pick up. I know, it's cruel, but it's really called lying. If you tell someone you're going to do something that you don't plan to do, it's brutal, but it's cruel. It's, it's, it's actually called lying. More importantly, though, as people of faith, as people who profess to be followers of Christ, do any of these resolutions we make, new goals, pursuits towards worldliness, mean anything if we miss what's most essential in our life? The purpose behind it. What's the purpose behind it? If you get the perfect body, the best physical shape of your life. You're like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? I was going to put a picture up there, but I didn't want to, you know, really lose everybody. Like, you get this perfect shape, but you don't know what God would have you do with it. Then you're, you're kind of like a souped-up race car with no track to run on. You have all that power, all that ability, but no opportunity to reach the potential for greatness that is within you. See, if you focus and dig in and develop your professional life, climb the professional ladder and go all the way up to the top, and yet fail to understand how God intends you to use your vocational giftedness to build his kingdom, then it's kind of like you're the best architect in the world or without a drafting board and a pencil or a computer in CAD. You have a platform, the knowledge and the experience and the talent and the skills, but no capstone project to use them on. And the reasoning behind your giftedness, the mark you could make on the world, the greatness to come is lost, wasted, or missed. You see, regardless of our age, regardless of our stage or our phase of life, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how old you are. If we don't develop an understanding of how our faith is meant to work in the real world and in our everyday lives, we will never reach the full potential that God has for us. Whether we're 10 years old or 90 years old, it doesn't matter. And this is what John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, or one of the founders of the Methodist movement, was searching for in his life. Steve Harper wrote, Wesley was primarily concerned about developing a faith that worked in everyday life. He was in search of what he called scriptural Christianity that was confirmed by human experience. You see, what John Wesley was searching for was a faith that worked in the real world, a belief that impacts our life and our actions and and deeds. And so today we're going to start this journey toward a deeper faith to guide our lives in, in the world in which we live by walking through this, this book of James, which describes faith with more walking and less talking. And I know that's cliche, but it's true. James, James is a letter of faith in the real world. It's kind of like a handbook of the Christian life. So we're going to begin in James chapter 1, verse 1, because why not start at the beginning? <laughs> 
which says, This letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am, this, I am writing this, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings! Exclamation point. Now it would be very easy to skip this verse, this first verse, but this introduction is key. I want to say key, vitally important, essential. I could be a thesaurus up here this morning on this verse. It is essential to understanding the entire letter of James. You're like, Tim, you're crazy. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's just an introduction. Like every epistle, every letter in the New Testament has one of these lines. Why would this be so important to this letter? The book of James centers on what it means to have a genuine faith, one that actively works in the real world. See, many have described James's understanding of a genuine faith as true religion. True religion. And so to begin to understand James's teaching, we have to begin with the author of James. And we can learn a lot about the author's character and spiritual disposition by how he identifies himself. And in this first verse, he calls himself a slave of God. A slave of God. In some translations, if you read the NIV, it says a servant of God, because that's more palatable to our culture a servant of God. But in biblical Greek, a servant is the same thing as a slave. It's, they're, they're synonyms. It's the same thing. If you're a servant in the first century, you are an indentured slave. If you're a slave, you're an indentured servant. It's the same thing. To self-identify as a slave is to self-identify as a servant, is to self-identify as a slave, is to self-identify as someone else's property. James not only viewed himself as a slave of God, meaning physically pro physical property owned by God, but also accepted it and proclaimed his status and position to other people. Now with this in mind, I wonder, how do you view your relationship with God? How do you view your relationship with God? Do you view yourself literally as a slave of God's property possessed and owned by the divine? Or, more likely, like most Americans, are you an independent soul? Do you see yourself on equal standing with God as though you are a peer to God? Because James surely did not. He viewed himself literally as property of God. And this mentality, this relationship, drove his teaching of the true wisdom of a genuine faith. So, just to be clear, when I talk about wisdom, biblical wisdom, as we talked about previously... Um, in, in the pre past series, biblical wisdom is the ability to live out what we know to be right and true. And if you have never written that down before, I encourage you to, because biblical wisdom, wisdom as described in Scripture, is the ability to live out what we know to be right and true, to be wise 
is to be able to do what you know what is right to be and true. And so if you're taking notes this morning on your message notes page, our first point is to develop a faith that works. We must first realize whose we are. We must first realize whose we are. It doesn't matter what your occupation is, relationship status, social economic standard. It matters not where you live, where you are born, what family you're born into. It doesn't matter who you believe yourself to be. What matters is who you belong to. James could have used his position and authority to teach this letter. John Maxwell talks in his five, letters of, or five levels of leadership that there are different levels of leaders and that well, there's like you know, authoritative leaders. Like, I am telling you what to do because I'm the boss. And that's one of the lowest levels of leadership. James could have done that because we don't know who James actually is. The author could have been James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. The author, James, could have been James, the half-brother of Jesus, the primary person in the Jerusalem church. Or it could have been James the Lesser. All three of these Jameses, there were lots of Jameses, had prominent positions of authority and respect in the early church. Which James is it? We don't know. Because he did not use his position, status, or worldly authority to proclaim the teaching. Because those things, position, status, and authority, didn't matter. What mattered above all else was who he belonged to. And that's where a genuine faith begins. A faith that works. As hard as it might be for us to hear, we must accept the fact that we are not God. I know, I said it. Nor do we play on an equal playing field with God. We have a unique relationship with our Creator, though. We are slaves. We are servants, we are property, owned by the one who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us. That is a genuinely unique relationship. So having set the foundation of his teaching, in his relationship with God, James begins his journey toward biblical wisdom and genuine faith by jumping directly into the realities of of real-life trials. And this is where things start to heat up as James doesn't pull any punches. And if you think, like, recognizing that you are property is not like a blow to the face right in the first line, um, it gets a little bit better. James dives right into the deep end of the pool, and right out of the gate, he talks about three challenging concepts, even controversial topics, which we love. The first of which are the trials and troubles of life. So in verse 2, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. What? That doesn't make any sense. Great joy. Dear brothers and sisters, when trial, troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. If James's letter intends to teach Christians a faith that works one that is rooted in biblical wisdom, which is our ability to live out our belief system, why do you suppose the first thing James brings up is the troubles and trials 
of life. To what purpose? Trials, problems, and suffering are a universal experience because sin is a widespread occurrence. James begins with the heart of the Christian dilemma. He doesn't say that if troubles of any kind come your way. He says when they do. The question is not if we will face adversity in our life. It merely is a matter of when trials, troubles, and testing of any kind come our way. Troubles of any kind in life will find us. We don't have to go looking for them. In reality, there is only one thing that we have control of in this life, and that is how we're going to respond to the situations that we find ourselves in. So how do we respond? James says we should consider it an opportunity for great joy. This is you. Joy. Yay! So point two, to develop a faith that works, we must respond with joy to life's trials. But what is joy? Not the person, the thing. What is joy? So often we use the same words, but each of us have a different definition. Have you noticed that? We all have kind of a different definition for joy. What James has said is considered an opportunity for great joy, and he was speaking of biblical joy. And biblical joy is not the same thing as our emotional response of happiness. See, being happy is biology, and, I, and I've shared this before. It's a chemical reaction. You know, it's when the, when the cookies come out of the oven and we smell the cookies and our endorphins are released in our brain and the pleasure, pleasure sensor, pleasure brains and we're happy. True joy, however, from a biblical standpoint, is a state of being. It's not an emotion. Which is good when we think about it, because the Bible often calls us to be joyful at all times. I think Paul said something about that. Which, if we were, we might be institutionalized. If we were happy all the time, honestly. Nobody's happy all the time, 24-7. If you knew someone who was happy 24-7, you would be calling the police. Because you would be concerned about that person. No, God, God's intent in Scripture for joy is for is for us to have a state of settled contentment in life. That is the intent for joy. Derek Tibbal said, Joy may be defined as a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God. So great joy... The great joy that James calls us to consider would be best described as an opportunity for genuine contentment in life. But there is a simple misunderstanding that people make when they read this verse in times of trouble and, and, and trials. As they, as they struggle in their life situation, they look for joy and they can't find it and they get frustrated and they give up. Do you know that person when their, their, their life is going just crappy and, and things go bad and they read this boy verse and they're like consider it an opportunity for great joy and they go back to their crappy situation and they're like uh be happy uh, uh. Ugh, i give up james says to consider it an opportunity for great joy james doesn't say to act joyfully when it occurs 
Joy, James doesn't say, when the bad thing happens, be joyful. He says to consider it an opportunity for joy. When the doctor says, I'm sorry, it's cancer, James is not saying to act out in joy. That's not what he says. He doesn't say go hooping and hollering like a crazy person. That would be absurd. James says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. James is not telling us how to feel. He's instructing us how to think. Consider means think. He's saying don't check your brain at the door when life throws you a curveball. When trials of any kind come your way, he's saying think rather than feel about your circumstances and how the difficulty of your situation can lead you toward a place of contentment in your life. This is how the power of true religion or genuine faith can transform your life. You see, a genuine faith that works is a mature Christian faith that gives a larger perspective of our life in relationship with God and the world. It is as much about thought as it is about feeling. It is as much spiritual as it is physical. Our response of joy is born out of our minds, not just our emotions. In order to understand why we should, we should think about our trials as opportunities for joy, James gives us the rationale behind it in the next verse. He says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. It is challenging to think about a trial, trouble, or testing in your life and take joy in it if you don't know the purpose behind the trial. And James lays out the why simple for us. You can be joyful because you know the why behind the trial. God allows trials, troubles, in order to, quote, test us. Now, in the Greek, the noun that is translated implies testing, which leads to approval, or better yet, proving, proving the worth of something. So, James is not saying testing like as a school testing, because we don't like tests. We have test anxiety. We're not being tested to see if we're an expert in something. Instead, he is saying that God allows trials and troubles to happen in our lives so that our sacred values might be proved. As though testing the quality of a diamond or refining gold in a fire. This testing or proving produces an endurance that is essential to James's understanding of genuine faith as though your faith is going to be stronger because it's going to be refined by fire, as iron sharpens iron, those kinds of events. Endurance is not a passive activity. In the book, The Scandalous Message of James, the author, Tamez, defined endurance as militant patience. And I like that term, militant patience. Endurance is an active process of waiting with strength. And this, and this is countercultural for us, as patience is often viewed, patience is often viewed as a virtue lived out by those who let other people walk all over them, or people who have no strength in leadership. Bruce Barton says it well, though, when he wrote that endurance is faith stretched out. James goes on to say, so let it grow. 
it being your endurance. Let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needed, needing nothing. So there it is. When endurance has run its course, we will be perfect and complete. And again, misconceptions abound. Do you believe that when you have endured your trials that you will be perfect and complete? I guess it depends if you're thinking the same way that James is speaking. James is talking about spiritual maturity, true religion, a faith that works in the real world. He's, he says to let your endurance continue to grow, to allow your faith to continue to be stretched. And as we do this, we find our faith developed to the point of maturity, a maturity that, that continues to grow over time because spiritual maturity Contrary to popular belief is not a destination on our path, but just a highway marker along the road. Because James is speaking about something that Wesley called Christian perfection. Something that's also related to sanctification. The goal is not merely to be able to endure the trials or troubles of life, but that through our endurance, as our minds are focused in our, on our relationship with God, thinking of our troubles as an opportunity for joy, that we would increase, increasingly mature in character, which God intended us to be. Growing to our maturity in faith requires that we not only believe in God and have ethical and moral standards, but we must also live out those values that we believe to be true, which takes us back to that whole biblical wisdom component. And when we're able to live what we believe to be true in our lives without hesitation, we are living a spiritually mature life and find wholeness in that life that only true wisdom brings. Which brings us to that next point. To develop a faith that works, we're going to have to ask God for some wisdom. James says that if you need wisdom... You need to ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. One of the things I love about James is how direct he is, how blunt he is. I feel like if I were to write a letter, I would write a letter kind of like James. He begins his teaching on wisdom by assuming that everyone reading his letter lacks wisdom. Because if you're going to lack wisdom, you need to write God and tell him you need or tell God you need some wisdom. Understand, James has a forward process model to faith development. Wherever you are, recognize your strengths and weaknesses and move forward towards God intended, God's intended destination. That's a forward progress model. Wisdom is the place for every Christian to start because it is where we all stumble. When trials come our way, it is wisdom that we lack, our ability to live out our beliefs that enables us to stand. It's, it's that wisdom that enables us to stand in our times of trial. So we must first pray for wisdom persistently. The fact that James says that we have to ask our generous God suggests that we are meant to keep on asking, and God will keep on giving. We know that trials in life will continue to pop up over time because you don't just say, oh, trial's gone. I'm done for my life. Have, has that ever happened to you? You got rid of one trial and you were done for your life? 
Because if that was, if that's you, man, I, I I'm just so envious because that has not been my experience at all. They keep coming over and over, like in the same day. Like one thing's fixed, and then a whole boatload shows up, and I get overwhelmed. Maybe not you. Your lives are probably perfect. Mine kind of sucks sometimes, but that's just me. I'm sure your life is awesome. We have to pray persistently, though. We know that trials in life will continually pop up over time, so persistently asking God for wisdom is essential. And actually, it even falls in line with Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. And here we come face to face with one of the character traits of God, which is important to understand, because as the more we come to understand God, the closer we can draw into his character. He is generous and giving. A lot of times we treat God as though he is stingy. But God is generous and giving. If we ask of God, it will be given to us. But what will be given is the question. God doesn't promise to give us wealth power or authority, nor does God promise to give us clarity on the decisions or outcomes that will come into our lives, as that's what we ask for. God, give me the wisdom and clarity to make this decision because I don't know what to do. Help make this a clear decision for me. But that's not what the Bible says. God promises wisdom, and remember, biblical wisdom is the ability to do to live out our beliefs in our life. The ability to discern how he would have us live. While God's gift of grace in Christ is free, his gift of wisdom does come with a condition. And we forget that sometimes. James 1.6 goes on to say, But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with a divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Here, James is not talking about faith in God as our initial profession of faith. He's talking about a deeply rooted, genuine faith, faith without doubt. Not doubt, doubting the existence of God, but doubt as in wavering allegiances. The image of a ship tossing on the wind in the sea is quite fitting for the first century. Everyone would have gotten that. But maybe a better way for us today would be to say, don't spin out. Don't spin out. If you split your loyalties between God and anything else that disrupts your journey of faith, it's like driving on icy roads with bald tires. If you're a sailor, then stick with the boat analogy. I need new tires on my car, so that worked really good for me. But we must also pray genuinely is what he's saying. You have to pray genuinely. Genuinely, James does not demand that we never question God. Quite on the contrary, in asking questions, the an- that's where we find answers. No, he's saying that we must remain loyal and undivided and should not doubt the, give, the giving character of God. Having a split loyalty is like hedging your bets. It means that we have, we have trust issues in our relationship. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, you can't be loyal to two opposing forces. You can't sit on the sidelines 
and root for the offensive line of MSU and then the defensive line of U of M simultaneously. To be loyal to one negates the loyalty of the other. A divided loyalty will actually prevent us from experiencing God's blessing in our life. God is described in Scripture as a loving father. Now, if a loving parent promises a child something, it doesn't matter what age you imagine. It could be a toddler, a teenager, an adult child. The loving parent promises something, something extravagant and follows it up with a condition of receiving a gift. The loving parent says, I love you. These are my expectations for you. Live them out because I want to fulfill my promise. But the child fails to meet the expectation that was set. So what does the loving parent do? Does the loving parent give the reward or not? What do you think? Here's what James has to say in, his la in the last verse for today. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. It's hard to hear. It doesn't make it not true. Where do your loyalties lie? Are you a house divided? Are you driving with bald tires on an icy road? Are you a ship tossed in the wind of the ocean? And what would it mean to live out your beliefs this week, or even today, to have biblical wisdom? When troubles come, what would happen if you thought before you acted? Would you come to understand genuine joy? How can whose you are become more important to you than who you are in this life? And what would it take for you to make one step toward a genuine faith that works today? Let's pray. Gracious God, you give so many ways. If only we could ask with genuine faith. We come before you as we begin this new year with a desire to grow one step at a time toward your desired future. God, give us the ability to think first of your purpose in our lives as we face the troubles and trials of our lives. That as we endure, we would come to understand the great joy that is genuine contentment in life. As we place our faith in you and you alone, pour out the wisdom we need to live out our faith actively in this world. It's in the name of Jesus, the Christ, your Son, and our Savior that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.